Hi, this is Tom Darling. Thanks for joining me on the second leg of our journey into the origins of the American runabout. As American as the Mustang, the Thunderbird, the Corvette, the personal-powered motorboat is a fixture in American boating history. The whole premise of this podcast series on the American runabout came from one of my visits to the vintage boat treasure house that is the Rossi Warehouse at the edge of the Mystic Seaport Museum. You've heard me describe it as the old curiosity shop of vintage small boats. There on entering, one turns left and runs directly into a 17-foot dark mahogany plywood craft. Looking right, one spies the quintessentially aqua interior of a cathedral-hulled, undecked, outboard-powered runabout. The first is the Hickman Sea Sled. The second cannot be mistaken. It is the 13-foot Boston Whaler. Next to those two hulls is one of the greatest examples of American consumer marketing, a display featuring an ad of a man in a suit sitting in the aft part of same said Boston Whaler, while a menacing timber saw protrudes upwards, separating the boat into two halves. It is the equivalent of the magician cutting the lady in the box in two. Boston Whaler cut in two, floating. But what struck me was the shape of the boat, the similarity to our star of part one, the Hickman Sea Sled, the ancestor of the Boston Whaler. The two boats look remarkably the same to me, and there's a complicated reason for that. For the sea sled, I was able, thanks to the archivist, Ms. Mary Beth Quindlin, at the MSM file library, for helping me look at the design and marketing file assembled by the chief designer of the sea sled company, 231 Devonshire Street in Boston. The man was John S. Barry. The story of the sea sled is there in those file boxes. In the case of the whaler, not so much to be found. The records are in people's heads. A lot of those are gone. I was intrigued about the connection between that story from the library to the anecdotal story of how the Boston whaler evolved. In the fall of 2020, I found with the Dire Dow podcast a deep and abiding loyalty from those who might have owned a dire nine-footer. There is affection among whaler families for their 1950s design that has endured for over 60 years. Spin Sheet magazine editor Molly Wunnins told me that her readers reacted strongly to the piece on Dire Dow and its classic legacy. The whaler evokes the same emotions. Let's make it clear that this podcast is about boat history, not boat IP. No claims are made here about appropriation or imitation. It's all about innovation among boom times in boats and the classic models that capture the boating public's attention and loyalty. But first, let's see what's up with our partners. Fall is upon us and fall means change. Windcheck Magazine is our partner up and down the waterfront, from New York to the Cape. Check out their captain's log for all the latest developments. Nantucket got its first view of Windcheck during this August. Tropical storm Henri may have KO'd the Opera House Cup due to excessive wind, but it didn't keep me from putting copies of the August issue throughout the 49 square miles of the faraway aisle. Look for this current podcast 
in the last issue for the year. Meantime, we were delighted to spend some time with an old Thistle friend, Dave Delmbaugh, who supplies his racing wisdom for Wincheck. Dave was sailing with none other than Mad Martha of Team One Newport. We sported the new Team One logo on our Nalgene bottles all week. Make sure you Mid-Atlantic sailors see our classic boat page and spin sheet. And now Prop Talk, coming to you from Annapolis. This month it's the J24 in the November spin sheet. And we have a first in Prop Talk on this podcast, The 100 Years of the American Runabout. And now to the main character, a man of the Massachusetts South Coast. In sail, the king of the double-ender. In power, Mr. Whaler, Mr. Deep V. Now, he's a sailboat designer. What was his first boat, you ask? My first hunt boat was a pencil-thin craft made out of plywood, the 110. I thought Hunt only drew powerboats. Yes, you're correct. Ray Hunt, one of the design iconoclasts of the 20th century, was arguably the Harrisoff of the powerboat hull. Ray Hunt was one of the crew of raffish characters who populated the boating industry in the post-World War II era. He was born in 1908, same as Olin Stevens. But what a different life story. Growing up on the south shore of Boston, he was a Cape Cod Bay boy, schooled on the shallow, choppy conditions of that water. Among designers, he might have been the most accomplished competitive racer, winning the Sears Cup at 15 years of age, and then again another time. He had two years of secondary education at Phillips Andover Academy. Much like Rod Johnstone of J-Boats, he was a self-taught designer. He drew based on instinct and observation. That was 180 degrees away from the methodology and mythology of his contemporary, Olin Stevens. According to an August 2020 Soundings article by Gary Reich on Hunt, Hunt's passion for sailing early on led to an idiosyncratic series of sleek double-ended series racers, numbered from 110 to 1010 hundreds of which employed the new marine plywood before converting to fiberglass. As a teen in Bristol, Rhode Island, I always coveted the low-slung, cigar-shaped 110 with its nifty trap door, spinnaker retrieval, and sleek appearance. Wright points out that the 30-year-old Hunt's opus was the Concordia Law, splashed in 1938 a gorgeous, fast, and seaworthy passage-making sailboat that came a full 15 years before Owen Stevens' Finisterre. There were 103 of these boats built, many at Abaking and Rasmussen, near Hamburg, and all but a handful are still on the water. Hunt's designs in sail and power, from the Concordia Yawl to the 110, and then, as we will see, the creation of the Deep V, the hull form that Albert Hickman declared DOA way back in the 1920s. All of this speaks to Hunt's out-of-the-box thinking. A World War II stint in the Coast Guard formed strong opinions on how to make a powerboat perform in rough conditions. Jump forward. The path to the Deep V started in 1946, and the Boston Whaler came early in that journey. The key design chronology for Ray Hunt 
taken from the excellent website done by Hunt Yachts, the boat builder and naval architecture group that succeeded him with his son Ray Jr. Looks like this. 1946, the Hunt Form 37, the lobster boat with a deep V. 1949, the 50-foot long sea blitz powered by a 1,500-horsepower Packard engine. Think it of as a private sector PT boat. And then, of course, 1956-57, the Boston Whaler, the 13-footer. Hunt worked with Dick Fisher and Rob Pierce to conceive the Boston Whaler 13. Fisher wanted to build a super stable boat using foam coring and fiberglass. The 13-footer they developed was really based on the Hickman sea sled, which had an inverted V-hull. See it in the gallery. Hunt proposed adding a hull in the middle. To my eye, that's a miniature deep V. The total effect of which was the so-called cathedral hull that Whaler used for decades. The Whaler introduction was a gateway to mass market recognition for Hunt in powerboats. From there, he grew a high-tech deep-V reputation. And with powerboat racing going the way of auto racing, he created his own Ferrari. That was the 1960 Moppy, winner of the Miami-Nassau powerboat race and prototype for the Bertram 31. From there, in 1966, C. Raymond Hunt Associates formed and produced the Surf Hunter, still the basic design for pilot boat rescue and Coast Guard designs. 1978, C. Raymond Hunt died at 70. This is the tale of Ray Hunt, the Deep V and the Boston Whaler. Was there ever a more beautiful small motorboat than the Bertram 31? Hunt started this all racing around with legends like Carlton Mitchell and Dick Bertram in the open sea east of Florida. The Ray Hunt Design Group website gives a detailed account of the Deep V, I recommend that website for any student of modern yacht design. Personally, I focused on the section entitled Development of the Hunt Deep V. You'll find a whole library of Hunt information at the website. This group's site has the modern touch. Facebook, Instagram, dive in and enjoy. My good friend and narrator, Peter Taylor, picks up the story. The High Dead Rise, or Deep V Hull, is proven and accepted as the ultimate hull form for speed, with comfort and safety in rough water. Sounds a lot like Hickman and his sea sled, right? It was a measure of Ray's genius that today, after decades of attempts by others to conceive a better high-performance and racing hull, his original dead-rise angle remains proven as the optimum. And why is this so? The sharp entry forward keeps pounding to a minimum. There is no deep forefoot to cause bow steering and broaching. The V-shape is carried all the way to the transom, resulting in an evenly distributed displacement and lateral plane. These factors urge the hull to travel straight through and over the seas with only moderate steering effort, even in quartering or following seas, an extremely important safety advantage when running down waves and especially when entering rough inlets. Continuing, the site says, a high chine forward and multiple spray strips knock down spray, prevent water from climbing the topsides, add lift, and reduce wetted surface. Less wetted surface means reduced resistance, 
great speed, and increased economy. A widely flared forward topside encloses substantial buoyancy that reduces the potential for burying the bow. At planing speeds, this hull gains stability from planing forces, so rolling is minimized. Our high dead rise V-shape is inherently stable. As the boat tries to roll, the deep V puts more and more hull in the water, forcing it back upright. The V-shape also allows the hull to bank in a turn, not roll outward like a round or flat bottom hull. And at displacement speeds, the deep V hull has more draft than a typical planing hull, so it behaves more surely, like a displacement hull. For all these reasons, the Hunt Deep V hull form is the best design for speed and good sea keeping in rough waters. Phew, deep breath. Thank you, Peter. Designers certainly state their claims emphatically. Remember in episode 14, the Hickman designers poo-pooed the V-shaped hull as inferior in sea. Plus le même, plus le même chose. Over 20 years, Ray Hunt changed the design paradigm for open water powerboats. He was truly the free spirit of 20th century designers. He chose to live on a farm in New Hampshire where he could tinker and think. The Soundings article talks about Ray laying out sticks, leaves, and seed pods on a table and explaining how one should design rudder or sail battens based on shapes found in nature. Let's come back to that again when we look at the Boston Whaler. Look at his logo. It represents some kind of primitive totem mixed up with whaling imagery. It's a far cry from the classic prim iconography of an SNS logo. This is a logo that suggests a native history working with and against the sea, insisting on elements that are historical and imaginative. From the time he penned the Concordia Yawl at 30 and the 110 at 31, Hunt was a South Coast man with a vivid imagination who worked hard with observation and trial and error. He was a hard man. His biography, A Special Kind of Genius, published in 2015 by the New Bedford Whaling Museum, is a book I intend to read during the winter. But all this hoopla about the deep V, as if it's some kind of mysterious cult of motorboat design. What about the whaler? How does it fit in? At first glance, the whaler would appear to have nothing in common with the sea kindliness and grace of the deep V. It's open, it's flat, it pounds in waves, it's wet, it skids through turns. But it is the design that sold thousands of boats. How did Ray Hunt get himself in the middle of this hot mess known as the Boston Whaler? In the lineage of powerboat design, the Whaler concept was a long-lost relative of a design we talked about in Part 1, the Hickman Sea Sled. But the creation myth of the whaler has as many nooks and crannies as an English muffin. How did exactly the whaler come about? The first version of the myth of the whaler goes something like this. In 1956, Ray Hunt's friend Dick Fisher came to him with a request. Dick wanted to design a motorboat for the people, to break away from years of wooden lookalikes and use the new modern material fiberglass. And he believed even more radical fiberglass over foam. Dick had a prototype in mind, he told his friend Ray Hunt. It was called the Sea Sled. Would Ray talk to Hickman there on Devonshire Street in downtown Boston and ask them if they could use their design for their new age concept? 
The elder Hickman did not respond to Hunt's inquiry. Finally, he said no. He may have had his reasons. He was doing major pitches to the U.S. Navy for sea sleds on a grand scale. And he was almost 80 at the time. No record exists of Hunt's response, but he had a penchant for salty language. The bottom line was XXXXX, we'll just do it ourselves, XXXXX. There is a second version of the creation story, which follows a similar plot line. This comes from Wikipedia, and yes, I am cautious when using Wikipedia. In 1957, it says, Hunt worked with Dick Fisher and Bob Pierce to develop what we know as the Boston Whaler 13. The opening of the story is the same. Fisher had seen the sea sled, looked up the patent, and went to Hunt, who had a bit of a reputation as an eccentric and mad scientist, but very persuasive. They went to senior Hickman to seek a collaboration. Hickman refused, so Hunt went back and went to work. The result was something the boating world had never seen. Fisher had wanted to build a super stable boat using foam coring and the new fiberglass. Hunt took the sea sled's inverted V-hull and added a mini hull in the middle. This created the so-called cathedral hull that we know and has been used for decades. And even more so, it was insinkable, which all of us boomers stressed while pitching the potential whaler purchase to our frugal Depression-era parents. Peter Taylor's pictures in the gallery show two models— the 13-footer, the Model A of whalers, and at the deluxe end of the line, a 17-footer. Acquired from a collector in Montauk, the 17-footer was the ride of so many serious fishermen. See the gallery and see this 17-footer that was owned by John Steinbeck. Chris Freeman of Mystic was kind enough to show this, and it was donated by the Laws, a local family. After several trips to Mystic, I began to notice what struck me about the whaler. It was insinkability. The whaler is really a piece of foam wrapped in fiberglass. It's like the ship in the bottle. How did they get that foam in there? If you examine the bow and stern, you detect two small holes, bigger in the back, smaller mid-bow. In the factory, the workman would take what looks like a shop back with liquid foam, plug it in the back hole, and fill the cavity between the inner sole and the bottom with quick-hardening foam. It was done when foam came out the hole in the bow. We're done. Yankee ingenuity. How many of us have the image in our mind of the whaler? From that ad, sawn in half with a big buck saw, and floating quite happily with a man in the suit, bobbing. Has anything ever shouted out so loud, unsinkable? The ad man that created that ad goes into the pantheon of late 20th century marketing. Sure enough, in the gallery for this episode, see the photos of the only boat ad with a boat sawed in half. In that biography of Hunt by Stan Grayson, a genius at his trade, see Hyman Hunt and his remarkable boats, published in 2015. His biographer has his own ideas of why Ray Hunt would just plunge ahead on a project like the whaler while he was pursuing the grail of the deep V. In that biography of Hunt, 
by Stan Grayson, entitled A Genius at His Trade, See Raymond Hunt and His Remarkable Boats, published in 2015 by the New Bedford Whaling Museum. His biographer has his own ideas on why Ray Hunt would just plunge ahead on a project like the Whaler while he was pursuing the grail of the deep V. Grayson wrote, Hunt was an idea man. He saw things, dreamed of things, drew things, built things that none of his contemporaries ever did. Woven into Ray Hunt's every fiber was a distinctive design sense that relied not at all on formal training or study. It grew from his particular genius. Imagine the public reaction to the unveiling of the Boston Whaler 13. The winged dihedral hull, the mini deep V cut into the middle of the bow. Any whaler owner for the last 64 years can tell you the boat is wet, but they feel safe. When I look at a whaler out of the water and up in the air, the elegance of the front curve seems something out of modern art, of Moreau or Matisse or Picasso or Brock. Given Hunt's penchant for New England living and hard living at that, it seems unlikely that Euro art radicals influenced his worldview. But his working style was surprisingly similar. Observation and improvisation, followed by dogged defense of the work. It is as if Hunt were experimenting with forms he saw in the sea and assembled them into a buoyant, sea-tossing design wrapped into radical hull design using a material, synthetic blown foam, that predated the wide variety of sandwich construction. These became key design components of a generation of boat builders 20 years later. I had a mission last summer. I found myself in a Marion, Massachusetts boatyard, where I had fortuitously found myself presented with several 15-foot and 17-foot Montauk models up on blocks and perfectly poised for examination and photos. I was there to talk to my good friend Dan Cooney, former marketing czar at U.S. Sailing from the 2000s, in his Beverly Yacht Club home port. The whaler, it was a very special boat, Dan said. When we got into the discussion of how I determined the whaler's shape, Dan was as intrigued as I was. Look at this 15-footer up on blocks. What do you see? The two dihedrals merged into one hull, linked by a tunnel between the two hulls. Look carefully at the central structure between the two wings. Step back. Use your imagination. It is a miniature deep V, the very innovation that Ray Hunt brought to American boating. Ray Hunt and Associates, to my eye, merged the dual hull silhouette of the sea sled and gave the whaler his own touch a deep V prow, so to speak. Again, follow along in the gallery for episode 15 and decide for yourself. It's a modern artist's shape, the whaler. A little bit of cubist, a little Picasso, a little Brock, the natural curves of Matisse. This is not the look of a traditional marine architect. Hunt did for power what other fiberglass building disciples like Bill Dyer were doing for sale. He put practical, self-taught engineering expertise gained from intense observation of the marine world to achieve a radical design that has endured. What irony that Hunt's greatest contribution in boating, the Deep V, which was in Hunt's head all during the whaler launch, may be overshadowed by the whaler itself. What an irony that the developer of the Deep V, which set the shape for generations of high-speed motorboats, never was able to fully protect the design patent for his invention. A year before Hunt put in the patent application, a small boating magazine had written an article about the idea. 
so the design patent was to be invalid. The result was the deep V-hole was essentially public domain. Maybe he just didn't care. His relationship with larger-than-life figures like Carlton Mitchell and Dick Bertram, as high-spirited as he resulted in the production of the granddaddy of the deep V, Moppy, winner to Massa, and prototype of the Bertram 31, a boat that even today turns heads in the world of picnic boats and Euro-styled speedboats. I confess that I do not have a complete and accurate account of the entire life history of the Boston Weller Company from 1957. The end of the story was now a generation ago, in 1996, when the industry giant bowling company turned boating company, Brunswick of Lake Forest, Illinois, brought the business for $27.4 million and eventually moved it into its enormous facility in Florida. It's the original builder of the whaler that most just don't believe. The founding builder, the Fisher-Price Corporation, supplier of toys to the baby boom generation, started building whalers in 1958 in Rockland, Massachusetts, on the North Shore of Boston. Who didn't fill their houses with plastic objects from Fisher-Price in the 1950s? It was a boomer's brand. But after 11 years in 1969, a new buyer stepped forward. He was Charlie Layton, the outdoor conglomerateur who owned Boston Whaler from 1969 to 1989, when he sold it to Paul Fireman, another Boston entrepreneur of Reebok, the athletic shoe brand locked in battle with Nike for world sneaker domination. But after Slayton's CML group faced financial pressures, Whaler had to go. In the 1990s, there were a number of private owners. It well may have been a relief to the workforce when the industry giant Brunswick with mega brands like Bayliner swallowed them up. Not so much when the manufacturing went south to Florida. Do we know how many new boats get built in a year? There should be a market for a whaler registry, like for vintage cars. The Brunswick Financial Reporting tells us of their move to bigger boats, but says very little about the history and current volume of traditional models. In search of my answers on the Boston Whaler and Evolution, as I said before, I'd taken a field trip to Beverly Yacht Club, founded 1872, to talk with my old friend Dan Cooney. Dan had worked for Charlie when he was head of U.S. sailing, and he embraced the gung-ho aphorisms from the leader. Dan has a unique perspective on the whaler. First, he and his family owned the Classic, the 13-footer with thwart and steering wheel. He also owned a one-of-a-kind whaler, which you'll hear about in a minute. Dan's a Bowdoin grad who grew up in Marion sailing in the steep chop of Buzzards Bay. It's a Harrisoft town, Marion, with almost 50 of Nat's 12 and a halfs with a variety of rigs, all sailing together. Classic. Dan, who sailed on all of Charlie's boats, was presented with a very unique boat-buying opportunity. Layton, when he stepped out of his position at CML, had the workers build him a specialty whaler, a 25-footer, a 747 among 737s. And when Charlie moved up to a bigger boat... Dan, a self-admitted serial boat buyer, picked up a one-of-a-kind whaler. Whale's tail shape, swimming platform aft, a rakish side profile. Was it really a whaler? 
He tells about it. This boat was, it was a 1990 boat. I bought it in like 2000. It was not long. Uh, it was right before Charlie died. Mm-hmm. Um, so it must've been like 2017. Okay. And so I brought it to the dock at our, our club in Marion and the guy who runs our races used to work at Whaler. And he's like, Oh, I, I delivered a boat like this a long time ago. One just like this. I said, well, what year? He said, well, I, I think I delivered in 90. I said, this is the 90. He said, Oh, I delivered to the owner, to the, the former owner. I said, no, no, this is his boat. I just bought it. Mm-hmm. I just bought it. And when I bought it, we bought it. Uh, Charlie wanted to use it for the rest of the summer. We had gone up in August. He was very gracious. Uh, he let us run it around Egamogan Reach, and we spent the night with him uh, in Islesboro. And but he said he wanted to use it for the rest of the year, the summer. And so I came back and I got it early October. Um, and then over that winter, Charlie passed away. Right. Unexpectedly, yeah. um, is it really active lifestyle and all that? And so we just decided we needed to, to name it Charlie in mm-hmm. his honor. And so that was a lot of fun for the boat to be named Charlie. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't the tuna. It was just, it was Charlie. It was Charlie for Charlie. Okay. Yeah. Right. The boat built by his company at the end for him uh, needed to be named in his honor. And I mean, we really, people have talked about, we never really had to turn a screw on the thing. I mean, I think it was really very solidly built. Owning a vintage whaler is an act of passion. As we said, they are wet, and the foam can get wet, and the boat can get heavy. But like the Dire Dow, there is myth and memory behind each hull. The Boston Whaler, the Model T of the modern American fiberglass runabout. Any color as long as it's white. That aqua non-skid finish inside reminds us of the old Dire Blue. The Whaler is one in a select number of nostalgic American iconic products of the baby boom. As we said, the Thunderbird, the Hobie surfboard, the Stingray bike. You'll have to have your own ideas about what's iconic in the 50s and 60s. But the Boston Whaler takes us back to that time. It's not the driest. It's certainly not the lightest. It's not the most maneuverable. But it could be the most beloved and influential runabout promising balmy summer evenings and bracing dawn fishing trips. So there we have it. 100 years of the American runabout. Go back and revisit part one. That's episode 14. See Captain Nat and his Gilded Age clientele, Albert Hickman and his revolutionary sea sled. We've had a lot of help on these two episodes. Thanks to our friends at Mystic Seaport, Mary Beth Quinlan, and that massive library, allowing me to look at the design and marketing file assembled by John Barry, the Hickman designer. Thanks to Chris Freeman for the inspiration of what I originally had called Hickman versus Hunt. Thanks, Dan Cooney, for your perspective as a South Coast waterman and whaler aficionado. Back in 2020, I found with a dire Dow a great loyalty for the 50s design that endured for 70 years. The whaler evokes the same response. All American classic. Send us your whaler pictures and we will add them to the gallery on the Conversations with Classic Boats website. And thank you, the listeners, who have propelled Conversations with Classic Boats to leadership in the category. Still talking to boats and their owners. The idea of the boat interview was a new one. 
and we're happy you enjoy it. Continue to give us comments and suggestions. We got a great compliment from our old friend Gary Jobson, saying that he admired, quote, the passion that you have for the work, which is saying a lot from a guy who has had a career as Mr. Sailing, as the Vince Scully on the water. Reach me at tcdforsale2 at gmail.com. And of course, check out the website, conversationswithclassicboats.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Spotify. And give us a review. Five stars, please. Tell your friends about conversations and how you enjoy it. And come back to the podcast that talks to boats. These sessions were written and produced by me, Tom Darling. Thanks to Peter Taylor, as always, for his narration. Audio and photographic production done by Griffin Bengroff. Fair sailing, Tom Darling. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hang on behind. And we'll roll.